welcome to Critical Thinking for Everyone! <laughs> wow. Ho, ho, ho. Variety is the spice of radio. Yes, and we are the spiciest critical thinking jar on the shelf. I think so. I mean, I've, I've uh, opened a couple of others of those jars, and they don't seem to really just... Pow! Have you opened some other critical thinking shows? Jars. Jars? I mean, jars. And I gotta say, I think ours is pretty good. Yeah, we're pretty good, I think. We are the critical thinking for everyone team. Mm-hmm. My name is Brian Barnes. This is Patty Payette. Hey. She's the sport one. <laughs> <laughs> Mm, I don't know about that. We don't know about that. It's probably true. You all can be the judge. It's probably true because I said it. Mm. Isn't that enough? I'm being skeptic. I'm being skeptic. You hear it on the radio and it's true. You know, it's just very easy. There's nothing knocking us about. There's nothing unbelievable about it, so it must be true. Mm. That fits very. You're, you're getting the runway going ah, yes. for our s- taking off on skepticism. And I do my intellectual turn on the catwalk. On the catwalk. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I'm skeptical as hell on the catwalk. Come on, do I like that. Yeah, sashay, sashay. I I think you're actually the better singer of the two. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, here we are again. We hope that you're listening to our 165 episodes on SoundCloud because they're there for you. Yes, everyone, because critical thinking is for everyone. We've been doing this show for a long time because we believe that it's for everyone. We've been doing this show for years, and we believe that critical thinking is nonstop. We think that it'll help you on the street be a better thinker. If you think about your thinking some, maybe just for an hour a week or something like that, then maybe when something comes up that you have to think about, that you're not very sure how to think about it, maybe you'll do better if you did a little practice. Yeah, even just this one hour a week. I liked how you said that. Mm. Um, we did a little poll, remember, uh, you, almost a year ago, we did a little poll and we asked people for their reaction to the show. People listened. Is this on and, Facebook? Uh, the poll it was, yeah. Yeah, we do have Critical Thinking for Everyone on Facebook if you want to go check us out. Find us there yeah, in the for, socials. Look for, look for our new poll. The socials, as they say. No, we don't. I'm just saying that in our poll last year, we asked people about the impact of the show on their thinking, and the results showed that people who listen found that it impacted the way that they thought. Sure, and we hope that that's positive. Yeah, we hope it wasn't just like, oh, that Brian, he thinks he's a smarty pants. That's how it influenced my thinking. Yeah, yeah. It, it influenced my thinking because I know they're dumb. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we hope that it was like a positive. Yeah, yeah. I have to go back and look at the results. Maybe we should do another poll. Maybe we make it an annual thing and we ask different questions. You know, polls are, um, polls are very popular. Yeah. yeah, we'd find out people love the paranormal shows because just I know I say that because I'm biased because I love them. Ah, yeah. Well, tis the season. Yeah, the veil of the veil is becoming thin between <laughs> this world and the other world. What do you What do you got planned for Halloween? You usually have nothing planned. What uh, do you got well, planned? Just some seances, you know, some um, maybe some uh, raising of the dead. A really? Little, uh, yeah, you know, something something just light. The usual supernatural yeah. hijinks. Yeah, yeah, like you do. Maybe. Okay. Um, maybe some ritual magics. Do you, know. you have your costume ready? 
I've got my um, I've got my athame and my my pentacle and my ceremonial robes. Okay, I'd say you're ready. I'd say I'm ready. Yeah, I just need. I think I need like the blood of a goat and um, maybe some um, some 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 bane, wolf bane, flea bane, some kind of bane. What is that bane? What it's is a that? plant. You use it for oh. use it for those magic spells. Okay, well, uh, you got a couple weeks to figure that out. Yeah, Good maybe luck. I can just substitute ashwagandha. Good luck. Good luck with that. <laughs> I don't. We don't have our costumes ready. If I summon anything, I'll bring it onto the show. Yeah, yeah. that'd be actually that'd be creepy. I'll as be heck. sure. To, yeah, it'd be fun though. Yeah, it might stand like the floor. fun and creepy fun at the same creepy. time. It'd be hard to get in the studio. Uh, but no, we don't have our costumes ready yet. Are you so okay? So you, yeah, you guys do an do. annual. We do, costume. yeah, but we we I don't know that that party's happening, so we oh, gotta come okay. up with so something. Oh, okay. So you're gonna do like toothpaste and a toothbrush this year, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, that'd no. be fun. That's actually a fun idea. Which one would I be, the toothpaste <laughs> or the toothbrush? Um, maybe it depends on how the costume went. Yeah. You know, like, would you have like straight up hair as the toothbrush bristles? I'd probably be Ed. That sounds like yeah, Ed. Yeah, I'd be the toothpaste. Toothpaste. Yeah. Well, anyway, something to think. All about. right, good idea. Throwing out there. All right, folks. Today's show is a natural to me. It's a natural segue from last week's show. But don't worry, if you didn't hear last week's show. You can still follow along at home on this one. Are you sure they'll be able to? I mean, should we just play last week's show right here? Just mm. so they can... Today's topic is skepticism. Skepticism! And you know where I got this idea? From last week's show. It was a natural <laughs> outgrowth of last week's show. I, I wish I could be that good. No, I, it, it was sparked by something I saw on social media, but I thought, oh, this would be the perfect segue from last week. Okay. So... I was on social media, okay. which, uh, as you remember, a couple of weeks ago, if someone gives me $2,500, I said I would get maybe get off social media for oh, yeah. 28 days. So I guess it didn't happen yet? Not, no, okay. it has not yet happened. So I was on social media, not happened yet. All right. And somebody posted a question, and it said, which, what subject should be taught in schools that isn't being taught? And I noticed a friend of mine had answered skepticism. Hmm. And I was like... Ooh, I like that. There's skepticism, and then there's skepticism with a capital S hmm. as mm-hmm. like a school of thought, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Fair? Mm-hmm. S is S in capital school. <laughs> capital school. <laughs> S, skepticism. And so yeah, I thought, a of thought, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, so you, again, it's one of those topics we've touched on on the show, but we haven't really done a whole show on it, but it certainly is worthy of its own show, I think. Well, sure. I mean, the skepticism that we're looking at is a relatively modern, modern take idea on skepticism, wouldn't you say? Yes, I okay. would. Right. I would say that. Okay. Um, now, um, skepticism, again, as a school of thought, the person that we most associate with that is. Well, for us, it's Michael Shermer. That's right. Yeah. Michael Shermer is the executive director of the Skeptic Society. Yep. Okay. You can find him at skeptic.com. Yeah, you can. Mm-hmm. Also, Brian sent me a bunch of his TED Talks. Did you which, watch any of them? Yeah, I did. Oh, did. I did. Mm-hmm. Now, some of those ideas I noticed you had you had brought on to other shows. Some of them were new. Mm. And uh, he's also he's the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine. Mm-hmm. He's the host of the podcast, The Michael Shermer Show, which from my understanding from looking online is he interviews scientists and other people has like these long form interviews have you ever listened to his podcast one time 
Really? What did yeah. you think? I thought, I thought it was fine. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah? De- definitely detailed. Yeah. Podcasts are quite the thing these sure, days. Sure, we sure. were ahead of the curve, though, right? Yeah, most definitely. Yes, we were. Still okay. And he is presidential fellow at Chapman University, and he teaches skepticism 101. Wow. <gasps> what do you think of that? I don't know. I don't know what it is. Skep- <laughs> okay. Well, I guess it's about time we say. Right? I think so. Okay. So... A definition of skepticism. Does he have one? Let's see. Skepticism is a provisional approach to claims. Hmm. It is the application of reason to any and all ideas. No sacred cows allowed. In other words, skepticism is a method, not a position. Mm. So let's just say that again. Mm -hmm. Skepticism is a method, not a position. I kind of thought it was, though, like a disposition that you could, you know, like an attitude you could cultivate. Well, I, th- I think he, what he wants to say is that there are moving parts to it. There are pieces. Oh, know, I see. It's not just it. a like, I don't know about that. Yeah. You he, know, wants to, he wants to give it a process. Got it. Mm-hmm. All right. Ideally, skeptics do not go into an investigation close to the possibility that a phenomenon might be real or that a claim might be true. Wait. Okay. They do not go into investigation, close the... Okay, so <clears throat> basically what he's saying here is that skeptics are open-minded. They well, yeah. go into an investigation with a fair-minded, like, let me really explore and learn and look for evidence. And I'm going to... Yeah, I'm but, not going to decide ahead of time right. what the end result. Fair? Yeah, but then at the end of the day, they do come down on the side of evidence. Okay. Right. That I mean, they need criteria. But the so process—it's like critical thinking. But they have an open-minded in the process. Yeah, ideally, you would, I think, if you're skept- if you're um, skeptical in the sense that Shermer's talking about it, because Shermer's skepticism is 100% derived from the tools of science. Like when you dig into his method in some detail, and so the tools of science for him are going to suggest experimentation. They're going to exper- They're going to. Um, He's going to make certain hypotheses as he gets started. He's going to test those hypotheses. He's looking for compelling evidence, as he says here. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that uses tools, I think, that he adapts from science. Um, a lot of those TED Talks do that. So he seems very much in the scientific method camp as yep. opposed to other ways to evaluate. It's like yeah. he's leaning into the scientific method. Oh, yeah. Like he even says in some of his stuff that like science is not um, a thing. It's like a verb. It's a process. Oh. Right. So so science is um, supposed to be an approach that you take. Um, you don't discover science itself, you use it. So a lot, because a lot of times I think that's a great point, Brian, because a lot of times I think people think of science as just these like set of facts and settled claims that I have to memorize as opposed to a group, uh, a a sets of knowledge Mm -hmm. that we have come to as a group, let's say as a group of scientists have agreed upon, but they're always open to being revisited, refined, 
you know, Avi Loeb, our favorite Harvard astronomer. astronomer. Far from my favorite. He, (laughs) I love his chutzpah, though. Oh, but it's, oh, what? But he's so sensationalistic and trash bag. Really? Is that you? Is that how you sum him up? Yeah, that's exactly how I sum him up. I can't believe that he's throwing away his distinguished career on these on these ill-fated conjectures. All right, so folks, if you're wondering exactly what Brian's referring to, let me well, let me tell you a claim three days ago that Scientific American published. Scientific that, American is so sold out with this guy. I think okay. that, I think that Scientific American's publishers, I'd love to hear from any of them on Critical Thinking for Everyone, by the way. I think Scientific American's publishers probably saw that when his articles that referenced um, little green people and stuff from outer space, when those articles made it into their publication, they saw their uh, their financials improve. And so I think they're just going to bring him back really? every chance they can for every um, completely far-fetched engagement that they can that they can uh, arrive at. Wow. Well, that's really interesting because I just think in the world of clickbaits, they've <laughs> they've had to use Avi to kind of yeah. maybe get some more clicks. So here's the kind of He's things. <laughs> so for those of you not following along at home about Avi Loeb, he is a Harvard esteemed Harvard. Well, was. Maybe he still is. He's emeritus. Okay. Who is the guy who made headlines a couple years ago when he claimed that this interstellar object that was spotted off the coast of Hawaii, he wrote in the paper, you know, all this information about this object and at the end said, well, we can't rule out that it was created by aliens or from another universe or another species created this probe. Scientists then later on said had an explanation for this object, what they think it is. But he has gone on, get this, some of the headlines from Scientific American. He wrote an opinion piece recently called, was our universe created in a laboratory? And it says, developing quantum gravity technologies may elevate us to a class A civilization capable of creating a baby universe. And then, get this, he had another story where he said, I'm sorry, not story, this was another article in Scientific American, how to tell if extraterrestrial visitors are friend or foe. Mm. But Mm. I'm sure there's a a scientific basis for that evaluation. I read an interview with him where he said that that he has no problem putting forth these kinds of wild conjectures because it makes people interested in science. <gasps> really? He yes, said that? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. It's after, like his after hook? After the space-going cigar. It's yeah, like yeah. his hook to yeah. get young people to care about science. Now that... Because, well, because he says it's not it's not outside of the realm of possibility that we would have these things. Right. So, That's a true skeptic, So he right? wants... No, I wouldn't say that. But he wants people to put more funding and more interest behind scientific exploration, especially of an astronomical type. So I don't find him skeptical as much as mm, sold out. Wow, that's harsh. Well, I mean, he's not he's not doing anything to indicate skepticism. He's saying that we should believe in something that we don't really have any evidence to believe in because it will help people do more scientific exploration and get more interest in science. I think we should interview him on the show. <laughs> 
What? You won't come on this show. You don't think so? Nah, we don't have we don't have any anywhere near the the cachet or the or the clicks uh, of scientific. Avi Loeb, if you're out there listening. We would, like lo- the we would love to have you on the show to explain <laughs> yourself. I'll tell you what. Well, that's what Brian says. I would love to have you on the show to come talk about what it is that you want people to really be thinking about. I think that's the same thing. <laughs> <I do>. <laughs> <laughs> well, Patty will reach out to Avi with all of her all charisma, right. and we'll see. <laughs> Let's see what we can get. Oh, man, I want to believe. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just had to say that. I just had to say that. Okay, so Uh, let's get back to skepticism and have Brian stop throwing paper clips. uh, (laughs) (laughs) So um, according to this, which is from skeptic.com, it's about skepticism. That's this article that I'm looking at right now. It says um, that... Uh, skepticism has a long historical tradition dating back to ancient Greece. We like to talk about ancient Greece. A lot of our conversations go back to ancient Greece. When Socrates observed, all I know is that I know nothing. Yeah. But get this. This is hilarious. But this pure position is sterile and unproductive and held by virtually no one. If you were skeptical about everything... You would have to be skeptical of your own skepticism, like the decaying subatomic particle. Pure skepticism uncoils and spins off the viewing screen of our intellectual cloud chamber. Oh, my God. I love that. I I think that's a total mischaracterization of what Socrates says. Maybe it is. A little self-serving. Yeah, it's totally self. I think it's reductive and self-serving. But at any rate, what what Socrates actually is. Yes. Socrates doesn't say, I know nothing, so I do nothing. No, he said, all I know is that I know nothing. Right, but he doesn't say, he does, I mean, this is like, he's saying, well, if you're skeptical about everything, you have to be skeptical of your own skepticism. I can be, Socrates is skeptical. It cancels each other out. No, they don't cancel one another out. I mean, I can be skeptical of my own skepticism and still use my own skepticism. Like, if I'm skeptical, I'm self-reflective, I'm looking at it, I'm looking for reasons and evidence to use it, and I might find those. Right. I mean, it doesn't mean that I just don't do anything. It just means that I'm certain that when I when I'm doing things, that it's incomplete, that I know that there's more to it, that I know it's not perfect, that there are problems here, probably. Okay. But this is still what I need to do now. This is still the best that I can come up with. And so I don't think that this business about I know that I know nothing. I don't think it's really the solipsistic um, <laughs> trash bag that they paint it as if you're in the in the essay. I, oh, is that Shermer, isn't it? Well, uh, no, I don't know who's actually well, writing this, but sure maybe they had Shermer. the intern. Maybe it was the intern's first day, and the intern's <laughs> like, I'm going to show off my well, this epistemological is, chops here. Maybe maybe this is an example of Shermer's um, <laughs> shallow philosophical understanding <laughs> uh, because of his deep scientific education. Really? Well, I, I actually find it very entertaining, although I, I agree with you that thank you for coming to Socrates' defense. I'm not Your saying it's not entertaining. Your friend. It's it's a little inaccurate. That's what you're saying. Okay. So modern skepticism is embodied in the scientific method, which involves gathering data to formulate and test naturalistic explanations for natural phenomena. Phenomena. Oh, man, that sounds boring. A claim becomes (laughs) factual when it is confirmed to such an extent that it would be reasonable to offer temporary agreement. All right. That's a really important point. A claim becomes factual 
Remember, fact, we tend to think of facts as immutable, Mm. right? A claim becomes factual when it is confirmed to such an extent it would be reasonable to offer temporary agreement, right? We can all agree on this fact until Avi Loeb shows up with an alien, shows up with an alien holding hands in the conference room. Sure. You know, we're sure. all going to agree that aliens, as far as we know, do not exist, even, right? But even then, if they walk in with him, I'm still going to be skeptical. <laughs> wow, he's like the P.T. Barnum wow. of Harvard astrophysics. I don't know. I kind of find him so funny. Exactly. Okay, uh, intriguing. Um, I guess he could do that. He could just—he <laughs> could do that because he's emeritus, and he's like, "Well, Harvard can't touch me, so I'm just going to—I'm going to." Get off my meds and, <laughs> and like That's a go different crazy. kind of impugning. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he I mean, maybe he's perfectly rational and I mean in the in the interview I read he seemed to be quite um, rational? Quite yeah, quite rational and quite quite intent mm. on his mission of improving interest in science through his outrageous statements, just like the um, what do we say? The ballyhoo and the flim flam of ye old uh, <laughs> ye old P.T. Barnum. Oh, I thought you were going to say flim flam, and you were going to mention Carl Sagan's. You know, not to get bamboozled. But you this know, is Carl who Sagan. this is one of the people that Sagan's talking about, <laughs> right? And so now we have our own Sagan and Avi Loeb, like um, rap battle. You know, oh, like there should be like a rap battle. Wouldn't sure. that? Sure. Let's. Do you have time to work on something to like that? To work on a rap battle between Avi Loeb and Carl Sagan. I, I'm, you have I'll, time, some downtime for I'll that. I'll see if I can put okay. something together. Let me know which one you want me to play. I would definitely want to play Avi Loeb okay. though. I think that you okay. should. Yeah, you're his cheerleader. Okay. Um, some claims, such as water dowsing, ESP, and creationism, have been tested and failed the tests often enough that we can provisionally conclude that they are not valid. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, I other, forget about that. Other claims, such as hi- hypnosis, the origins of language and black holes have been tested, but results are inconclusive. So we must continue formulating and tested hypotheses and theories until we can reach a provisional conclusion. All right, let's look at that. So he's saying hypnosis, origins of language, and black holes have been tested, but results are inconclusive. Hypnosis, I didn't know that. Hypnosis is considered kind of a gray area. like As opposed some, to what? Well, it's sort of like more shared agreement among scientists that it's... So some scientists are like, hypnosis has these kinds of positive effects and other people are like, eh, hypnosis doesn't really do anything. Like, that sounds interesting. Well, there's definitely, I think, a... Um, like different camps? Yeah, different camps about hypnosis, but I don't know. The problem is that it's um, it's very hard to falsify hypnosis, right? So you can't use... That's one of the things that all these skeptical folks want to do is use... Um, scientific tools for things like falsification, right? To come up with, come up with um, scenarios in which they know what the outcome will be if people perform the experiment, and it will create a false outcome, right? You have to know what the system is to create an alternate system that you can then create false outcomes with. Okay. And the problem with hypnosis is the way that it works is not clear enough that you could create falsification. I see. In other words, like there's too many unanswered questions about how hypnosis works. Right. Because, really... Well, and it, I mean, whether it works or and whether then it if works. it works and what the conditions would be. It's like it's it's fascinating. Hip, hypnosis is one of those things. It's like the, the classic example of falsification problems is is Freudian theory. 
right? Because Freudian theory um, is considered in some sense, you know, under this approach to be a pseudoscience as opposed to a science because you can't test the hypothesis about all the hypotheses about like your relationship with your parents, yeah. which are key to Freudianism, oh, right? So see. those aren't, there isn't a way to come up with a false version of those that you can then use to say, well, the system, we know how the system works. It works like this because we created this false system that, that gives us the same results every time, even though we're doing it wrong. There's no way to do that because for literally everything, every claim within Freudianism could go back to, well, that's your relationship with your mother. Right. So there's no way to differentiate. And so it's just like, well, if it's always okay. that, then maybe it's never wow. that. I did not... And that's how we come up with this hypothesis, the uh, hypnosis thing. I didn't know that. So interesting. So interesting that it's in the category of origins, language, and black holes, or it's like a, it's like in that same um, broad category. I mean, I don't um, know. I mean, I think he's pretty generous there. I'd probably really? know with water dowsing and really? ESP, but mm, you know, that's just me. Mm. The key to skepticism is to continuously and vigorously apply the methods of science to navigate the treacherous straits between no nothing skepticism and anything goes credulity. All right, let's talk about that for a second. Navigate the treacherous straits between no nothing skepticism and anything goes credulity, meaning mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like the two dichotomous stance are, well, nothing can be proved for sure, so I'm not going to believe anything versus, you know, um, just bring it on, right? I'll entertain all ideas as possibly true, right? Isn't that what they're saying? Like you're trying to navigate between these two things, okay? Well, sure. I mean, that's what, I mean, those are errors that we make mentally, right, if we're on either of those extremes. Yes. Yeah. Which one do you tend toward? Or, uh, I tend toward a skepticism rather than credulity. Really? Well, according to Michael Shermer, most people tend toward credulity. One of his TED yeah, Talks. absolutely, yeah. Right, he talks about, like, it's our natural state to just believe. It's right. our natural state to go, oh, right. oh, okay, that's that's really what happened with JFK? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the right? thing. And then not only are we supposed to, you know, go ahead and believe, but then we we incorporate that into our knowledge, right? And that's the problem is that if I don't if I'm credulous, if I don't really have good reasons for believing something, then once I incorporate it into my knowledge, that becomes useless really. Oh. It's just a data point that may or may not be accurate and when I try to elaborate on it or do other work with it, it it doesn't it doesn't fit, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny, it's it can't be explained. Well, the other thing about that is if you accept it, let's say, like a conspiracy theory, then to let that go, you have to be actively disabused of that perspective, right? You have to – it's a misconception Mm -hmm. that Mm – so that's – that's crazy. That's human beings. <laughs> human beings are weird. Human so are weird. Rene Descartes, this is a quote, Rene Descartes, our friend mm-hmm. that we talked about mm-hmm. not too long ago, after one of the most thorough skeptical purges in intellectual history, concluded that he knew one thing for certain. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. Mm. Yep. That's what they say. But evolution may have designed us in the other direction. Mm. Humans evolved to be pattern-seeking, cause-inferring animals shaped by nature to find meaningful relationships in the world. This is what I mean by this follows from last week's show because I said that, but I didn't explain it. But last week's show was on, Brian? Uh, Cynicism. No. Last week's show was on? Stoicism. Ah. Last week's show was on? 
Marxism. Nihilism. Nihilism. Right? There is no meaning in life to be found. That's why I didn't know. So so we talked about nihilism. So I thought skepticism is perfect because if nihilism is rejection of meaning, then skepticism is another another approach to making meaning and sorting through all of these things that try to capture my attention and in all these true, you know, all these claims wanting to be true. And so mm. it helps me really ground myself in my understanding of the world mm. and the sort of in the scientific. So, so I don't want to be nihilistic. I'd rather be skeptical. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know that they're really that far apart again, because skepticism is a process. I mean, from my, from my point of view, you would use a skeptical uh. process to test your nihilism. Use a skeptical process to test your nihilism. Sure, or your whateverism, like whatever point of view that you have, you would use these processes. And I see. What's interesting to me is that, is that, is that sure, all of Shermer's processes, every single uh, approach or systemic tool that he uses for skepticism is comes from science. And the critical thinking system that we usually talk about from Richard Paul and Linda Elder is not based in science, like it's explicitly not scientific. It can be applied to science. And so then the question becomes, um, what tools would you use as a skeptic to, you know, if you needed something to critique your skeptical method, what would you use? Would you use those same tools? And it seems like that creates a solipsism, right? If I use the tools of the system to create the system, and if those tools aren't designed for self-critique, then you might run into a difficulty actually coming up with anything that you think is true in that regard. And so that's why I like the elements of thought, intellectual standards, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, because those are designed to be self-critical and to point to places where even they aren't working as they should. And I wonder, with skepticism, it seems like it's just it's sort of an external standard. Well, right. I'm really glad you said that because I think that's part of why I felt just like a little uncomfortable when he, you know, the claim is that, well, skepticism is grounded in the scientific method. And I'm like, yeah, but when I'm at the grocery store right. and I'm trying to make a decision between these products, right. the scientific method, it may not be like super practical in that moment. He, but, he, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, and he talks about things like um, like de- like detecting type one and type uh, type two errors. So a type one error is you think that there's something that's a danger, but it's actually not. So it doesn't matter if you mess it up. A type right. two error is that you think that there's no danger, but there is. Yes. Right. And so we can certainly, we to your point, we can take that theory and we can apply it to the grocery store, but it's super limited. Yes. Like it's only going to like like when and I and it's so broad. Well, it's very it's very challenging, right? Because if I'm going to do if I'm going to say ah, you know, I need to be because because he talks about how for type one and type two errors we evolved evolutionarily for that. So it's like when I'm looking at the Oreos, (laughs) like he would say maybe type one and type two errors aren't helpful when you're looking at the Oreos unless you think someone's hiding in the shelf and is going to jump out at you from behind the Oreos, which only happens at Halloween. Um, But he would say that what we need to look for instead is, is patternicity, which those are those are both examples of our tendency to seek patterns, and he would say that's the evolutionary trait that I take with me to the grocery store, that I need to question. 
right? Because I develop certain patterns or habits shopping in the grocery store, some of which are not going to contribute to things like my health or the health of my pocketbook or better knowledge about my nutritional whatever. Like it's the patterns that it's the, it's my tendency to notice patterns and develop patterns that can cause me to get in trouble. Maybe I just always buy the food that has a certain packaging because I recognize I ju- patterns. I right. want to have orange in my cabinet. Like what the hell does that have to do with anything to have orange packages? In my But when I open the cabinet, I don't want to see all these colors. I just want to see orange. So well, I buy those things. Okay, so – let, this is a really useful everyday example. I want to land on this for a little bit. Yeah, get on. For, okay. So first thing I want to say, I want to talk about patternicity in just a second. Don't let me forget that because you brought you just brought that up about okay. patternicity. patternicity. And he, I remember that, not synchronicity like the, right. the police album. Remember right, right. that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you can illustrate yourself. Okay. Yeah. So. When you got to Oreos, what I thought you were going to say is the danger is in the trans fats in the label. But I'm not sure I they have get... trans fats anymore. Okay. All right. <laughs> the high fructose corn syrup in the, in the Oreo. So where I thought you were going with that is that we're no longer – most of us are no longer worried about the risks of like the, the you know, cougar in the – jungle that's going to come out and devour us if we're not not, i'm loving your sound effects very good uh but the dangers that are lurking in the 21st century grocery store are much more difficult to spot sometimes and we are not saying that cougars aren't going to jump out and attack you in the 21st century grocery store that might be a danger well that's might be but it might depend on on where you live and where you shop (laughs) it would definitely okay so but for some of us we can get like into this like pattern of shopping and we're not paying attention to labels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's where I thought you were going with that. Mm. But you kind of did when you started saying like about patternicity and seeking patterns and we're pattern and Michael Shermer in his TED talk talks about the fact that, you know, we create patterns even when they're when they're not there. Exactly. Our brain creates patterns yeah. because it's comforting to us right. as human beings, right. as right. human mammals, right? right? We want, but why do we want patterns? Like what, is it about making meaning? If we're going to believe, if, if we're going to believe Shermer's rap about this, we want patterns because it gives me more, it gives me a feeling of control within the um, evolutionary context. So again, for him, it all goes back to like evolutionary biology. I, this is a built-in tendency I have because my ancestors who survived, by the way, God bless them, um, and not long enough to reproduce anyway, those people struggled in the environment with understanding it. And so they developed these pattern-seeking tendencies in order to survive in the ancient environment and then pass them down to me, but I may not need them in the same way. Okay, so question. What's an example of an, a pattern that might have our ancestors would may have created to help them survive? Oh, well, the one that Shermer uses is you see a rustle in the grass. 
right? right. And so is the rustle in the grass the wind or is the rustle in the grass the saber-toothed yep. tiger? Right. Right. And so if you get this wrong, then you... So, but what's the pattern they would create to grapple with that? Well, when you see the rustling oh, in the like grass... Oh, like how you interpret then it? Then you run away. Then you, oh. you run away or you prepare for the confrontation or whatever. Okay. Yeah. And so if you detect that, if you, if you take that pattern as being a serious one, but if we... We, we would still see the rustle in the grass, but then the question is, do we detect the rustling in the grass and interpret it as benign, right? And so that I see. recognition of that pattern, the way that we interpret it in any given context in the pre-technological world would be, you know, the key to our survival. Okay, or so another example could be back before they had satellites and weather forecasting, mm. right? They would sort of look at like weather patterns or or in the sky sure. right they would look for signs or sure. um might even look in 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 um uh the forest mm-hmm. or things like that that would sort of tell you and you would look for patterns in meaning to mm-hmm. better understand oh we're about to have a snowstorm or mm-hmm. this is happening and this looks familiar and this is what this means oh yeah i mean there have been plenty of those instances right i mean that's every like wagon train right they look at the, right. at the weather at the sky and they say yeah. ah can we make it through the pass or not right right and then, right. You know, then the so, story we get the story based upon their ability to figure the pattern out right so in the 21st century world you're saying that, like, biologically, we still, and Shermer is saying, we, yeah. we have this craving yeah. to to create patterns. And sometimes they're meaningful and sometimes right. they're not. They could be just random things that we put right. together, right. but they don't really hold water. Right. And some of the examples that he uses have to do with, um, you know, the patterns that we notice that we then put a lot of um, value in because of superstition. Like um, so, he uses an example that happened in the 1990s um, of a um, a building in Florida that had an image of the Virgin Mary appear oh, on the side of the right. building. Well, an image that they thought well, was the, right. Thousands of people went there, and for a week there was a pilgrimage with I mean 24/7 in the parking lot, and people going to the window and trying to heal themselves. And I mean, it was a it was a serious event for the religious. Um, and, wow. you know, Shermer points out that, you know, he just went around the back of the building and it turns out anywhere there was a sprinkler and a palm tree, you get an image <laughs> that's the same. And, you know, in the back of the building, they were trying to take the image off, right? Because you can't have two miracles Right. The they same just building. wanted like one yeah. miracle that everybody was yeah. looking and at. So, don't, don't see this pattern. Right. right? And that's the same kind of thing. Like we look at, um, there's, you know, very famous examples of like, statues, like statues of divine personages in um, churches and stuff and at shrines, um, you know, miraculous, you know, starting to like they, they run water, they cry, they bleed, these kinds of things. And, um, you know, famously when people like the Vatican, for example, has investigators that go out and investigate all these claims of these miraculous things. And there was one some years ago Shermer doesn't talk about it, but there's a, there was one example of that where people, you know, people see the pattern. They see, oh, look, there's water coming f- down the face of this icon and, dr- and dripping down right. its body and onto the floor, this water. And so people say, oh, well, that's sacred. And they're going up and they're, 
they're blessing themselves with the water. They're gathering the water and drinking it. They're putting it all over their body. They're selling it. They're talking about its miraculous healing properties. When they went to investigate, it turns out it was an overflowing toilet that led to <laughs> a, a plumbing problem that had the water flowing down the wow. statue. Right? But, I mean, people saw the pattern and they went, oh, this must be one thing. But, in fact, it was a different thing. A different thing that actually makes a lot more sense. Right. It's a, it, I mean, it's way more likely that plumbing got redirected somewhere in the building and now there's water flowing here where there wasn't before rather than God just spontaneously made the statue cry. Right. So this is And it go- won't stop. So Shermer calls this like investigating things that are of this world before you assume they're out of this world. That's right. That's a they that's the right? phrase he uses. Yeah, and yeah. so um, okay. Before, so, before you assume that it's out of this world, make sure you check to see if it's in this world. Right. <laughs> and so, but but people, because we're hungry for pattern seeking, That's right. we're going to cling on to something that sort of fits our worldview, right? right? So if you're That's very right. religious and this fits your worldview, you're going to embrace it. So when you were talking about the biological, like need, the biological need to, to seek patterns, it made me think of a article that was in the New Yorker about three or four years ago that said why facts don't change people's minds. Mm -hmm. And one of the claims that she writes about, I wish I could remember who wrote this article, is she says, because biologically, one of the ways we also survived was by believing what our tribe believes. Right. So there's almost a... So if you feel a sense, like an inner sense, an urge to sort of to connect and go, yeah, that's what that's what everybody else in my social group like. Yeah, that makes sense to me that there's there's an internal survival mechanism. Right. We're not all walking around as skeptics. That's a learned skill because our natural impulse is to go go with the flow. Mm -hmm, Right. For most mm -hmm, of us. mm So skepticism, like critical thinking, is a learned stance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah. So if you folks are wondering, well, how can I become a better skeptic or hone my skeptical skills, mm. the Skeptic Society and Skeptic Magazine, Michael, two of Michael Shermer's you know, babies, sure. are here to help you. And what I really love about the magazine and the website is there's so many different visual and interesting takes on what's going on in the world that that make it really engaging. Like they have this one thing on the homepage right now, top 10 things to know about alternative medicine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sure. And that I'm like, ooh, that looks really interesting. This is by Harriet Hall, MD. And I'm really interested in, I like this idea. Again, this, this top 10 things, it's in this clickbaity context, this is a way to get information where you're like, wow, I could read these seven articles by Avi Loeb. <laughs> or I could look at how Skeptic Magazine is presenting information as, as a way into the topic. It's not right. necessarily everything I need to know, but it's a way in. Right. Okay. Right. So um, Skeptic Magazine did, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quiz you. Okay. Oh, okay. They did a list. I'm not a subscriber. The top ten. Uh, let me let me get the top ten weirdest things that people believe. Okay, 
Top ten. One of them, by the way, I'd never heard of. Okay. So clearly, I'm, I'm not. I'm still not quite sure what it is. But just in the pantheon okay. of things that people believe, okay. what just name one thing that's really off that people believe. And and I will tell you one of our favorite topics. Bigfoot is not on here. One, one so I'll thing give you that's that. Really off that people believe. Yeah. I mean, or or without evidence that they believe. I mean, I would. I mean, what? all of these Loch Ness monster, Bigfoot things, ghosts. I mean, they. You know, those the belief in the paranormal. I think is a big one. Belief in uh, telekinesis. Belief in um, uh, mm. lives uh, after death. I mean. Uh yeah, actually that last one. Okay. You got this afterlife and a soul. Sure. Okay. Sure. That is number two of the top ten. I would imagine. According to a Harris poll, the following percentage of Americans believe in some form of the afterlife. Mm. What percent believe? What percent believe that a soul survives? I mean. 70%. 71, you're pretty good, dude. Yeah, I know they're out there. How about heaven? How What percent believe in heaven? Oh, I imagine it's probably slightly less. 65%. It's 75, that's so 75. high. And me, mm-hmm. that to my mind, that's high. How about hell, <sighs> buddy? Got me. It's Just got you. Many? Hell's got you. I'm that's sure. very revealing. Sure, yeah. uh, hell, um, 61%. 61%. And reincarnation, what percent? 40%. 20. 20, yeah. That's so that's a big culture. one. All right. What yeah. else? What else do you think is on the top 10 list? And and by the way, some conspiracy theories are also on here, just oh, as a little okay. hint. So. Well, the 9-11 conspiracy yes. theory will be on there for sure. Yes, it is. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy to me. I don't know. People I'm, thought it was an inside job? It probably was an inside job. What? Don't say that. It probably was an inside job. Stop that. They had the same. They they ran a simulation for the first time a week before 9-11, which was exactly the same thing that happened on 9-11. And it created confusion among first responders within the military because they thought it was still the same simulation they'd done a few days before. What? Dick Cheney Cheney ran that simulation. Oh, come on. That is not, that is absolutely true. Where'd you get your information? National Security Agency. (laughs) Wait, you're not supposed to, I think you just signed your own death warrant. You're not supposed to share information from the NSA. Oh, well, the top secret from when you worked for the NSA. Well, I mean, this is, this is part of the conspiracy theory. This is one of the things that people talk about because this is an actual thing. I mean, it's been in the, in the newspapers that this happened. This was an actual event that occurred. And so it's one of the reasons that people think that there is, you know, a lot of conspiracy theory going on, right? Is because of, is because of things like this. And then is that the way is that the way that steel is sheared off? Is that the way that that oh building's God. supposed to fall? Dude, please tell me you're not really oh, th- you don't really man. think that. It is there are lots of questions that the 9/11 commission was not even allowed to investigate. Really? Mm. Cover-ups on cover-ups. Have you seen you, you remember what happened at the Pentagon 9/11? Mhm. What happened? Plane hit the Pentagon. You ever see a picture of the plane? No. Ever? No. You would think that if a if a jet hit the Pentagon, there'd be wings, there'd be shrapnel, there'd be a a fuselage. You'd think there'd be a photo somewhere because we have we have aerial photos of the Pentagon. That's right after, weird. But we don't have a plane. There's no plane. That's weird. Anywhere. That is weird. I'm sure it's nothing. 
So what's your... I'm just saying that there are questions there that weren't answered and that the 9-11 Commission doesn't deal with. And those questions, just because the government said there's nothing to see here doesn't mean there's nothing to see here. So I'm not saying it was an inside job. What I am saying is... You're saying that all the questions are answered. No, a lot of the questions are not answered. Important questions are not answered about this. It is is crazy, the questions that didn't get answered. I will believe you that not all the questions are answered, but I don't think I really believe there was a conspiracy. Well, you know, you, you know what's really problematic about that oh from from the conspiracy theorist point of view I on nine eleven. I am so surprised to hear you saying this. I have you I've of looked all into this people. in detail. Well, yeah. I mean, this is I mean, this okay. was on my you, watch. You had your. Skept- I was at work. <laughs> you were. Yeah. You were at work. Yeah. At the NSA. Yeah. On nine eleven. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm very into, I'm intimately familiar with all of these questions and concerns and, and fears. But one of the things that happened was, I think just the the day before, maybe, yeah. 9, 10, right. I think that the big headline was that the government had lost a lot of money. Like the government couldn't find a bunch of money that supposedly had been out there. And no one even knows what that story is about anymore because no one ever talked about it again. Because 9-11 swamped all of the news coverage. Okay, if, and so a lot of people say, oh, that was a way, this was an inside job to hide these billions of dollars that went missing that went for nefarious purposes. Okay. I would be so interested to interview Michael Shermer and have you share your point of view and hear what he says. <laughs> the, problem is the, the problem is the kinds of things that, that a person would need to have information about in order to know the real answers I mean, we don't have that information. We don't have, we don't have access into that information. Even if, even if that information exists, but we don't have access abs- to it. It's one of the things that feeds the conspiracy theories. I see. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Mm, okay. Um, guess what? Uh, another things in the top ten <laughs> countdown of weirdest things people believe. I don't know. You're apparently you're in there, but anyway, <laughs> I'm in because there because nine eleven. You believe said. In me? Okay. Come on. What are some other things? Other weird things, things that people believe. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, past lives. Uh, nope. Okay. Um, but we did like ghosts. Here's another one. Uh, creationism. Thing. Creationism. Mm-hmm. That's in there. Okay. U- UFOs visit Earth. Okay. That's in there. Well, the government last last year released, two years ago, released information that said that they think that UFOs have, have visited Earth. Hmm. Okay, Avi Loeb. No, I mean that was that was again that was a big that was a big headline that was obscured okay. by other things. This is what they say in the, all fields the of COVID science. Pandemic, for in all fields of science, there is a residue of anomalies unexplained by the dominant theory. Yeah. That does not mean that the prevailing theory is wrong or that alternative theories are right. It just means that more work needs to be done to bring those anomalies into the accepted paradigm. In the meantime, it is okay to live with the uncertainty that not everything has an explanation. And once again, before we say something is extraterrestrial, let's first make sure it is not terrestrial. So what he's saying is, well, we can't say if it's terrestrial, so let's be careful not to say it is extraterrestrial, right? We don't know. Well, and it's not just extraterrestrial stuff. I mean, one of my favorite you know, historical examples is these uh, Cottingley fairies, right? That, oh, um, right. That, that uh, Arthur Lewis... Conan Doyle. Oh, Arthur. I was yeah, going to say Lewis Carroll, but Arthur. Put a lot of money into and thought were yeah. real. And it was just photographic technique, right? And so when you say, it, I mean, very much this idea of we should be checking in the world because if it's something technological, mm-hmm. then especially at this point in history, we should know that technology can be, can be manipulated by experts, 
And so, you know, that was in the early days of photography. And so there wasn't a lot of knowledge Mm -hmm. of these kinds of tricky techniques. But these days, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't fall for stuff like that. Every time they go to one of these, um, you know, one of these paranormal places, the ghost hunting shows and all that. Yeah. You know, they're always there for uh, one to two weeks to get that half hour of footage. Right. Yeah. So like one to two weeks of yeah. year round or of, of, of round the clock filming and investigation and what you got was twenty six minutes of a door opening that you had to put sound effects on? Like what? Like that was it. Like that's the haunting, right? The haunting is that there's a light that we can't explain that we won't make the effort to explain. We just say, Ah, oh, it must be in there. You know, it's like the the this is where something like a skeptical method really comes in because you go well I'm not sure that that's enough for me to know that you know and in, um, paranormal you know all sorts of paranormal things have this character. All right, let me ask you about one of them that I never heard of. Okay, morphic resonance. Got me. What is that? Not a it clue. says. According to Rupert Sheldrake, a Cambridge University trained scientist, the universe is infused with what he calls morphic resonance. Similar forms, morphs, resonate and exchange information through a universal life force. Sure they do. This, he says, is the basis of memory in nature. Oh, the idea. What, so what is he basically saying? Like there's like some kind of like it says this is a type of ESP phenomenon. <clears throat> so what's he saying? Like there's a. There's like a wavelength. Like that's a, yeah, maybe like a like yeah, a something force that we field, all... like like the force from Star Wars. Sure, I guess. I don't know. I haven't heard about it, but it sounds oh, like you know it's just something that we resonance. all. I mean, that's how we. I mean, he's. I guess he's saying that that's how the phenomenon of something like memory pops up. Well, he says it explains things like phantom limbs, homing pigeons, how dogs know when their owners are coming home, and such psychic phenomena is how people know when someone is staring at them. Okay, but it now, doesn't explain anything. Else. How people know when someone is staring at them. Okay, now this whole thing about when dogs people don't know—that's the whole point of stalking. People don't know when they're being stared at. It's so funny you should say that because Ugh. I just read last year something about how dogs know when their owners are coming home. I just read something. It's about it's about the it's about the shadows and the the time of the day. Well, what I heard was that there is a pattern yeah. when you leave you tend to come home leave at the same time come sure. home and it's the scent like how intense your scent is so as the scent's fading over a certain amount of time they begin to go oh oh that person is gone and they and there's a uh what's the word i'm looking for like they use their scent as like a trigger of, oh, maybe it's about time for that person to come back. Well, they would have to already have experience to be able to do that. Well, right. I'm saying they build that up over time. Oh, but guess what I read last year? Mm. I mean, sorry, last week. Mm. This is on this topic. Mm. Okay. So they did. Okay. Have you ever noticed when you leave to go to your car to get something and you come back, uh-huh. your dog can be super excited that you're back? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they did a study Mm -hmm. and they said, when you leave and come back, Mm -hmm. up to two hours, your dog, no, 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 I'm sorry. Let me, I think I said this wrong. They said that your dog's reaction up when you come and go up to two hours of, within two hours of time, their reaction would be pretty consistent. 
But then they say after two hours, whether it's been two weeks or six months, they say the dogs don't show after like a two-hour span. They don't show much differentiation of how long you've been gone in terms of their reaction, whether it's been two weeks, 10 days, two months. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't seem to. I mean, it seems like we have just a horde of anecdotal um, indications to the contrary. That dogs are like super excited no matter how long you've like been gone. Like people come home from deployment or something, or people have been gone, yeah. for, people gone to prison, and the dog recognizes them and completely flips out. I mean, that's not. I mean, again, I didn't do the study. You I didn't know read what? the study, but it that's just seems a really like, good point. I gotta. I think I want to revisit that. I have to revisit it. And, Let me and revisit that. Yeah, because Michael Michael Shermer would want us to look at the evidence more carefully. Well, Michael Michael would want us to be um, complete in some regard. But the problem is, see, science isn't that interested in being complete. It's not? I don't think so. I think science wants to find justifications for the theories that it's putting forth now. And then it wants to make sure those theories fit examples going forward. But if they're outliers, science is perfectly comfortable calling those anomalies. Mm, but at what point do the anomalies become indicators that the theory's a little bit off? Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, that's a great question. The problem is that, that you know, if, if the theory falls in the woods and there's no one there to think about it, <laughs> <laughs> then does that theory get changed mm, at all? All right. I kind of want to do a little experiment with my dog. Now, sometimes I notice my dog, mm. like... I pull in and the dog hears the car and starts mm-hmm. barking and is mm-hmm. all excited. Mm-hmm. Other times I pull in mm-hmm. and it must be in a sound sleep. Mm. And I walk in and it's like, looks up like, oh, you're back. Mm. So there's not a lot of consistency there. You'll have to keep some data. Maybe, yeah. maybe, yeah. maybe in my spare time. I mean, yeah, you just keep a little clipboard on the wall and just mark what the dog does. And then after a while, you have Mm -hmm. 150 data points and you collate Mm -hmm. them and you come up with what you come up with. Do you think, let me ask you this, Caesar, remember that guy, Caesar, the dog whisperer? Remember that guy at a TV show? Mm -hmm. This is one of the things he claimed. He claimed that when you're leaving and you have a dog that doesn't want you to leave or Mm -hmm. they said... They can sort of read your emotions, mm. so don't act like, oh, I'm so sorry I'm leaving. You should just be all like, hey, I'm leaving. Like, see you later, buddy, or whatever. Like, you should keep your mood light and happy because they'll pick up on that. And we hope that that makes you feel good about the end of our show. Thank you, Patty, <laughs> for, for cueing all of our listeners out there to have positive associations as you go through your week and try to do some critical thinking because it is tough, but we need some <laughs> theories to figure out what our behavior is really about. And, um, you know, people and dogs, thinking about thinkings for everyone. Even you and your dog. And your dog.